with you, would you turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 20. We've been working our way through the series, uh, the Gospel of John this year, and we'll continue to do so next term. And just because it's Easter, we jump obviously to the relevant passages. Pastor David spoke on Good Friday from John um, 19, and so today we're looking at John 20. Scripture says, early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in um, at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. And then Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived and went into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from the scriptures that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Excuse me. Then the disciples went back to their homes, but Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb. She saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and one at the foot. And they asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They've taken away my they've taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they've put him. At this she turned around and she saw Jesus standing there, but she didn't realise that it was Jesus. Woman, he said, why are you crying? Why is it, uh, who is it you are looking for? Thinking that he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I'll get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned towards him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, don't keep holding on to me, for I have not yet returned to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am returning to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told him, I told them that he had said these things to her. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, it's a great privilege for us, for us again to be able to read your word and to read it freely. Be with our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world who don't have this privilege and bless them particularly father our brothers and sisters in Kenya experience intense persecution we pray that you might visit us this morning by your spirit that he might enlighten us again with these very familiar truths and that they might have a fresh ongoing impact that our lives might be aligned with your purposes and your will speak to us lord for we your servants are listening everybody said We live in an age when truth is relative and you've undoubtedly encountered this in your conversations with people and maybe even family, close friends or whoever, work colleagues, that if it's true for you then that's good but that doesn't necessarily mean it's true for me. An extreme example of this but not perhaps so unfamiliar these days but this is going back 
many years, and it's just become increasingly popular. This is a Jewish guy, Rabbi Kushner, um, who in several of his books, this one particularly, Who Needs God, says this, and I quote, and he's using the example of Jesus' resurrection. He says, If believing in the resurrection makes my Christian neighbour a better person, more loving and generous, better able to cope with misfortune and disappointment, then that is a true belief, whether it is historically true or not. If believing in the resurrection makes you a better person, then that's a truth. Whether the resurrection really happened or not is not important. The fact is it has an impact upon you which is beneficial. That's his belief. The Apostle Paul would disagree with him completely. The Apostle Paul wrote, If Jesus is not raised from the dead, then our preaching is vain. Our faith is worthless. We are still in our sins and we are without hope. And we, of all people, are the most to be pitied. I agree with the Apostle Paul. If you can disprove the resurrection, then my following Jesus stops. As indeed it should for you. Our belief in Jesus as the risen, reigning Lord hinges upon the truth and the historicity of the resurrection. We're not talking about an experience which is like Western resuscitation, which is simply bringing someone back to life with CPR, which is quite common in our world. <clears throat> Teachers are trained in it, lifeguards are trained in it, you may be trained in it, work people are trained in it, and our medical practitioners most certainly are trained in it. And there are extreme examples where people actually do die and through CPR, you know, breathing the kiss of life and breathing into them and pumping their chest and they're restored, they're brought back to this life. So they'll die again. That's not true of the resurrection of Jesus. That is true of all other resurrections in the Bible. Lazarus, who was dead four days, was, we say resurrected, but in fact he was brought back to this life, who would later on die again. He didn't enter that state, which is called the glorified body. We exist in three, in three phases. Our first phase is now, where we are embodied. Then we have a second phase, which is where we are disembodied. Believers, uh, where people who have died leave their body behind and their spirit, their soul goes to another place. And then there is a third phase, which is re-embodied, which follows the resurrection. Embodied, disembodied, re-embodied. Lazarus was embodied, he died, he was disembodied, spirit left his body, but then he was brought back to this body. He didn't go on, he came back. Make sense? Doesn't make sense. That's not true for the Lord Jesus. What happened for Jesus was he was embodied, he was disembodied for three days, and then he was re-embodied with a new body. He is the first to be raised from the dead in a resurrection body, which is like his body but glorified, different, as we'll talk a little bit about this morning. So we're not talking about resuscitation, not what happened to Lazarus. And if you go through the story of Lazarus, you'll remember it that uh, he died and he was laid in the tomb and he was there four days and Jesus came to the tomb and 
he sang out Jesus' name, Lazarus, come forth. And you know why Jesus said that, don't you? You know why he said his name? What would have happened if the Son of God just went to a tomb and just said, come forth? What would have happened? They all would have come forth. But he said, Lazarus, come forth. And he does. He is resuscitated. He is revived to this life, this body, same body. And he still had the grave clothes wrapped around him. And Jesus then gives the instructions, untie him, unloose him and let him free. They never gave those instructions about Jesus. Didn't have to. Because he didn't come back to this life. He went on to the third phase and led the way for us. We're not talking about Western resuscitation. This is something very different. And I haven't been able to find this book, but David Pawson tells the story of a man, Tom Skorinci, or some name like that, Italian-American, who was dead for 10 days. And Pawson tells the story how he, he um, ministered with this guy, Tom Skorinci, in Berlin. And Skorinci was the first speaker. And he got up and he spoke about his experience, how he had died for 10 days. At, he was at Stanford Medical Center in San Francisco. They had an oxygen pump on him for the lungs to keep going. They had a heart pump on him. Apparently, he was clinically dead. He was brain dead. 10 days later, he was revived, resuscitated. And you can read about it in the book called 10 Days Dead. Brought back to this life. Pawson tells the story. He was the second speaker and he got up after that. You try following that act after being dead 10 days. Nor are we talking about uh, Eastern reincarnation, which is where many people increasingly in our world uh, believe that we are reincarnated, that we live in this body, that we die, but we are reincarnated to this life in another body. It could be another person or it could be another animal, depending on whether you've been a good boy or a bad boy, a good girl or a bad girl, depending on your level of behaviour determines what you come back as. And the idea is that this cycle keeps going until you're good all the time. And when you're good all the time, then you proceed to be without a body. That's the ultimate existence, no body at all. That's like the old Greek thinking, which is about the body as a prison of the soul and death is the release of the soul from the body and it's free. That's not biblical thinking and certainly not Hebrew thinking. So we're not talking about Eastern reincarnation. In resurrection, you come back as yourself, glorified in a new body, as in Jesus. Similar, but different. People could be with him and not recognise him. And yet there was still, he bore in his body, that new body, that glorified body, some of the same scars and marks. Does that mean we'll have some of the scars and marks in our glorified body? I don't know. But I do know we'll recognise one another. And the Bible says that we're going to be like him. When we see him, we'll be like him, which means we'll all be 33 years of age. Which, if you're under 33, is probably bad news, but if you're over 33, like I am, you're looking forward to that day to be 33 again aren't we? Oh, well, I am. I'm not sure that's when I was at my best, but I was probably very close to it. We do not receive this new glorified body when we die. 
That's why my prayer, I said, Rita is not fully glorified yet. She does not yet have her resurrection body. She is in glory. She's in paradise. She's with the Lord Jesus. She's with the other believers who have gone before her. She's experiencing the presence of the Lord as he promised. Like he said to the thief on the cross, today you'll be with me in paradise. We don't have a lot of details and we can't be dogmatic, but we do know this. The Bible says that at the resurrection is when all of us will get our new body and we get it together. We are all glorified together. Death is this separation and this limitation, but it's temporary. It's not permanent. No Christian creed ever says that we believe in the immortality of the soul. The creeds always confess what the Bible teaches, which is we believe in the resurrection of the body. It is God's will for us to have a body. We are embodied people. That's how we are supposed to be. And so when in this chapter, John chapter 20, when um, Peter and John go to the tomb and in Luke it simply says and Peter went to the tomb and not finding the body he went home and he was amazed that's what Luke says uh, John who's writing years later probably decades later knows that story is going around he gives us completely superfluous information which is not necessary at all <clears throat> so Peter and the other disciple that's him started for the tomb both were running together but the other disciple, that's him, outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He, John, bent over and looked in at the strips of linen cloth but didn't go in. And then Peter, when he arrived, just charges straight in. He didn't care. It's Passover time. You're not supposed to touch dead bodies. You touch dead bodies, you're disqualified from participating. But Peter wanted to know the consequences, what's going on. And so he just charges straight in. And eventually, John also enters. And it says, when John saw the strips of linen cloth lying there and the, band, the turban that had been around his head or on his face, not really sure, was folded up or rolled up and separated. When John saw that, it says, he believed. He believed what? Well, he believed that the body wasn't stolen. No sane grave robber, and people did rob graves back in those days. Ten years after this, Claudius Caesar, the Roman emperor, will issue a decree which makes it illegal for graves to be robbed or stones to be removed or bodies to be taken from the tombs. It's interesting, isn't it? Ten years after the resurrection, there's a Roman decree, because of the, I'm sure, because of this story being told throughout the Roman Empire and then probably the actual experiences of it, of people stealing things. What did he believe? Well, he would have believed Jesus wasn't stolen. And the way the word believed is used in John's Gospel, and particularly in John chapter 20, I think it means John believed that Jesus was alive. He didn't fully understand it, but he believed it. He accepted it. Because as I have told you over the years and on numerous occasions before, if you had have been inside the tomb on that Easter Sunday morning, Saturday night, Sunday morning, I think C.S. Lewis is the one who does this. If you were sitting there in the corner and if somehow there was a light source and you could see what was happening, you would not have seen the Lord Jesus open his eyes and yawn and stretch. Wouldn't have seen that. What you would have seen is the Lord Jesus lying there, dead. And then in another instance, gone. Disappeared. 
and under the weight of the grave clothes, under 100 pounds of whatever it was in kilograms, the spices, like an Egyptian mummy, wrapped up here to the chest, up under the arms. And then they had a separate cloth which would cover around the head as a turban and then a face cloth. There are various ways and various practices of how they did it. That's the best I can discover. And so the weight of that, the clothes, the grave clothes just simply collapsed. So when Peter comes in, Peter, when Peter comes in, he sees that and he goes, hmm, wonder what this means. And he goes home puzzled. John comes in and he sees it and the scripture says, he says, he believed. He believed. And in the context of believed, as I said, in John chapter 20, it means he believed that Jesus had risen. He believed that Jesus was alive. <clears throat> not resuscitation, not reincarnation, resurrection. Embodied, disembodied, risen. Re-embodied in a new glorified body. And that's what happened with the Lord Jesus. He simply disappeared in the, out of that tomb. Uh, God the Father did something under the... Um, I like what one commentator said, how he said... In the darkness of Mary's womb, God the Father created, the Spirit of God created a body for the Lord Jesus. In the darkness of the tomb, at the end of his life, God the Father is again creating a body for the Lord Jesus, a new resurrected body. It's that body glorified. It's this body which will be in eternity, but different. It's this body which is going to be transformed. How do you explain that? I can't explain it. I just believe it, because that's what the Bible says that God is going to do. He will take the DNA, I don't know what he's going to do with my body, and he's going to create, if, he, if you could imagine it, it's difficult, I know, but a new, better version. <laughs> and so when the women come to the tomb, prior to Peter and John getting there, they've got a question. There's a big stone in front of the tomb. Who's going to move the stone? It's interesting, isn't it? They were so driven by their passion for the Lord Jesus, they got up very early before sun, sun up. They've got their spices and they're off. They're going off and they're talking to themselves and it's still dark and the sun's starting to come up and then it dawns on them, who's going to move the stone? It's a big stone. Josh McDowell says it weighs up to two tonnes according to the size of it and the weight of the stone, the limestone which is in the area, two tonnes. One very early church father commentator said it took 20 men to put that into place, which I think might be a slight exaggeration of the early church fathers. But a lot of men put it there. How are four or five women going to get rid of it? But when they got there, of course, the stone wasn't there, was it? Nor was it rolled back. Nobody got there and sort of pushed it back up the track that it was in. That's not what the Bible says. What the Bible says was that stone had been picked up out of the track and removed from the tomb. And when the women got there, there was an angel sitting on it. Matthew 28 says, As an angel of the Lord came down and he moved the stone and he sat on it. Angels are another being altogether, much stronger than what we are. And of course, with the earthquake, with the angel, with all that happening, the Roman guard, the guard anyway, they took off and they invent a story which is pure nonsense. So Mary and the women, sorry I'm jumping all over the place, Mary and the women arrive at the tomb, the stone is removed and when they get there they obviously have a peek inside and Mary in panic, not expecting the resurrection, 
runs back to Jesus' closest friends, John and Peter, and says, he's gone. They've taken him, and we don't know where. They get up and they run to the tomb to investigate, to find out. And just as I said before, Peter is marvelled by it. John comes to a point of belief. Mary, out of sheer love for the Lord Jesus, is hanging around the tomb. They've gone. The women have gone. The guards are gone. And she stoops for the second time and has a look in the tomb. And she sees something marvellous. She sees two angels, one at the head, one at the feet. Can you think of any other thing in the Bible, in the Old Testament, where it's like a box and has two angels on it? Think of anything? Mercy seat, Ark of the Covenant. It's almost like that's been duplicated again. And the angels say to her, why are you crying? They say to her, woman. Which you remember back in John chapter 2, it's what Jesus says to his mum, woman, why, what's this to do with me? And it sounds rude and, and sounds a bit harsh to us, but it's, the closest I can come to is the American version of where they say ma'am. It's polite, it's respectful. It's not close and affectionate, but it is polite and it is respectful. That's the word they use now, woman, ma'am, why are you crying? He's not here, he's risen, just like he told you, he does what he says. And she doesn't understand that, as we don't understand things either when we're in the midst of grief. And she sort of wanders back out into the garden and she sees a person through her tears, through the early morning light. She doesn't realise it's Jesus. She thinks it's the gardener. And you know the story. She says, if you've taken him, just tell me where he is and I'll go and get him. And he says to her, her name, Mary. And he says her name like she's heard it. For the year, over the years. Just like when Rhonda says my name. Different tone, obviously. <laughs> Daryl, I know what she's going to do. If she says Daryl, that's not the same as Daryl or darling or sweetheart. Mary. And she realises immediately and she gives him a title, Rabboni, Aramaic, which is what she often called him. And then she runs up to him. Like the other women had done either before or just after this, it's not really clear, that, and they had embraced him and worshipped him. She embraced him, but she embraced him in such a way that it was really tight. And you don't quite get it in the English, but what the English, what the Greek means is that it's stop hanging on to me it's like by all means touch me and hold me but don't cling I'm leaving I'm not here forever I'm going to stay for a bit but then I'm going because that very night he'll come to the disciples and I invite them come see touch he does the same with Thomas a week later so it's not Mary touching him which is the problem it's Mary clinging to him Then the Bible goes on and gives lots of other examples of appearances. There is that one. Now, according to Mark's Gospel, Mark chapter 16, that's the first one. But that reference in Mark's Gospel is not part of the original Gospel of Mark. It's one of the endings of Mark, which is perhaps a little bit later. And so, you need, excuse me, you need to put that aside. And we're left with the possibility that Jesus saw the women first and then he saw Mary Magdalene. Not that that's a great point. But another point is this, those who saw him first were the women. And that's significant in that culture, and it's had an impact into our world, into our culture. 
On Easter Sunday, the Lord Jesus makes five appearances. Mary Magdalene to the women, to Peter, somewhere that day in the afternoon, to the two on the Emmaus Road, and I don't have time to go into that this morning, and then to the disciples gathered in the upper room without Thomas that night. Five appearances on that first Sunday. Then we're told of an appearance eight days later on the following Sunday, this time to Thomas, which is a marvellous appearance. These are just very ordinary stories of what people actually encountered on this day. And with Thomas, it's Jesus has come, he's been seen by the ten, he's eaten fish in their presence, and he's gone. He disappears again. Thomas turns up wherever he's been, and Thomas says, we call him Doubting Thomas, that's not correct. He's not doubting Thomas. He certainly is questioning Thomas. But when you think about and analyse what Thomas is doing, it's really quite commendable. He refuses to be influenced by peer pressure. He's going to respond to the facts as best he can get them. That's all he's after, the facts. And he says, Jesus is not there. Unless I put my finger in his hand, put my fist in his side, I will not believe. Eight days later, the following Sunday, Jesus turns up and repeats the words to Thomas that he said when Jesus wasn't present. That's worth noting. What Jesus is in the process of beginning to teach his disciples is that even when he is not present physically with them, he is aware and he is listening to them. He appears to Thomas on that second Sunday. Says to Thomas, Thomas, be longer unbelieving, come, put your finger in my hand, put your hand in my side and believe. Thomas immediately makes that amazing exclamation, my Lord and my God. The very words that Thomas had said, Jesus quotes back to him. That's the fourth appearance, uh, sorry, the sixth appearance on the next, the following Sunday. And then there are five others. 500 at one time to James, the brother of Jesus, who was a sceptic, um, to those up in Galilee and then by the Sea of Galilee in John 21 and then uh, Matthew 28 on a mountain in Galilee. And then in Luke 24, he's on Bethany, he's on the Mount of Olives just before he ascends. The 12th resurrection appearance in the New Testament is of the Apostle Paul, which is of a little time later. The body of the Lord Jesus was appearing and disappearing. Would turn up through closed doors and behind closed and sealed walls. It was tangible and intangible. It's a resurrected body. It had greater powers than the body that we have right now. And so we will have too. But just like our bodies, he could never be in two places at once. He could be there or he could be there. But he couldn't be there like that. Not in the body. And so now what Jesus is teaching them, not just by appearing, but what he is teaching them by disappearing, is preparing them for his absence. Preparing them for his invisible presence which is the presence that we experience, that we know about, the invisible presence of the Lord Jesus. So before I move on to a slightly different tack, Jesus died, Jesus was buried, his body was wrapped up like an Egyptian mummy up to the arms, around the chest. There was a large stone rolled in place. It's Friday. On Sunday morning, that stone is removed from the track. The clothes are still there, but collapsed. The body is gone. And then he has been appearing to different people over a period of about 40 days, appearing and disappearing to male and female, to individuals and groups, 
in the country, on a mountain, by the beach, in a house. He appeared in the mornings, he appeared in the evenings. He appeared in the city of Jerusalem, in the city of Bethany, at Emmaus, and in Galilee. And in each instance, when you read about somebody before they encountered the appearance of the Lord Jesus, they were either in some sort of emotional despair or distraught, they were questioning, they were doubting, they were afraid, but after they met him, transformed from fear to trust, from despair to love, from questioning to trusting. Something real happened to these people. And that's where it's great evidence for us. And get this point this way. You get nothing else, get this. They saw the evidence of the resurrection of Jesus before they saw him. Did you get that? They saw the evidence of the resurrection of Jesus before they saw him. That's exactly the same for us. We see the evidence of the resurrection of Jesus before we see him. But see him, we will. So what is this evidence of the resurrection that they saw and that we have? What can we say to people who say, why do you believe in the resurrection? What is the evidence? Well, it's not scientific evidence. It can't be scientific evidence. It's not something that we can observe and it's not something we can repeat and test in a laboratory. So it's not scientific, but don't be put off by that. The evidence is nonetheless real and just as common in our world. It's called legal evidence. Courts of law use it all the time. It's where um, crimes have to be proven to have happened and a person has to be found guilty beyond reasonable doubt based upon either eyewitness testimony of something that was seen or heard or circumstantial evidence where the person has motive, opportunity and the means to do something. They didn't see it happen. They didn't hear it. But something points towards that conclusion. A man is seen walking along the top of a ridge towards a cliff with his wife. The man is later on observed walking back by himself. The wife is gone. There is nobody. He can't prove murder. But later on it's found out that he has bought two tickets, one for him and one for his uh, mistress, and they're going to be flying to another country. You also find the evidence that just weeks or days or whatever, a period of time just before this, he'd taken out increased life insurance on his wife. Did he do it or didn't he? Put up your hand if you think he did it. Gee, and if I ever commit a crime, I want you guys on the jury. <laughs> Can't prove it. But the circumstances are pointing that way. Is it beyond reasonable doubt? Well, that's how the law operates in our world, in our country. So apply the same tests to the resurrection of Jesus and you will find that we do have eyewitnesses testimony, not to the resurrection, but we do have eyewitness accounts to his death, to his burial, to the empty tomb and to the appearances. We also have circumstantial evidence, just going quickly without expanding any of this. We have the fact that the day of worship has changed from a Saturday to a Sunday. Jewish people, devout Jewish people, worship God on the Sabbath, on Saturday. Now worship him on Sunday. What led to that change? And why is it the Gospels consistently record and on the first day of the week the women went to the tomb? They don't say, and on the third day 
they went to the tomb. That would have linked it to the prophecy that he gave, on the third day I'll rise again from the dead, but they always say on the first day of the week, pointing to this change of worship. The disciples who were behind closed doors were cowards and were very much afraid of the religious authorities. And then within weeks, transformed and now courageously, defiantly preaching and pointing the finger at the Jewish leaders who had crucified the Lord Jesus. You did it. What led to that change in them? That psychological transformation of character. The very fact that the church exists today, circumstantial evidence, two billion people believe it's true. That's rather substantial. Healings and miracles performed in his name. The transformation of the Apostle Paul. Well, circumstantial evidence this. Apparently, of all of the professions in the world, the legal profession has led to more people being believers in the Lord Jesus than any other profession. Not all lawyers, but many lawyers do. Frank Morrison, who moved the stone, a lawyer. Simon Greenleaf, a lawyer. An examination of the witnesses of the gospel for, legal, for the legal profession. Ross Clifford, David Kimborn. On and on and on. Um, again, David Pawson tells the story of two professors of law at Oxford Universities back in 1920-21. Not Christians. But with a strong Christian witness on Oxford University campus, campuses. And they were frustrated by it, so they both said they're going to go and look at the evidence in their semester break. They would, went their separate ways. 1921, they came back together after the semester break, and one professor says to the other, I'm sorry that I have to uh, tell you that I have become convinced on the basis of the evidence that Jesus rose from the dead. To which the other professor said, I am so relieved to hear you say that. He had also come to the point of belief. There's something perhaps about the legal mind and how it thinks and how it works. And I commend to you Frank Morrison's book, Who Moved the Stone? There's a lawyer's mind at work, looking at the evidence, cross-examining it, and coming to a conclusion. It was a book that he wanted to write to disprove the resurrection. He wrote one chapter and he said, I can't write that book. I now have to write this book. Jesus did, in fact, rise from the dead. Well, then why doesn't everyone believe it? Because they don't want to. It's not a factual thing, it's a moral thing. Jesus died, he was crucified. Once upon a time, liberal critical scholars would deny that, but there aren't any now. They all establish the fact that he died by crucifixion, that he was buried in a tomb. They all accept it. Then there are lots of different theories. The stone was removed, the grave clothes are intact. You know, the women went to the wrong tomb, he swooned, in the, he swooned, he just naturally revived, and all other sorts of different sorts of theories. The appearances and the changes in the disciples. What are the implications of all of this for us? I said to Rhonda driving to church this morning, I said, Jesus, the Lord Jesus rose today. So what? What difference does that make for us? Her response is a good one. She said, it means that his word is true, that everything he said is true. That's correct. That's both a comfort, but it's also a warning. Everything he said is true. There is a heaven, there is a hell, there is a day of judgment. He will separate believers from other believers. It's true. 
He said so. He proved it so by his resurrection. And now he looks for love, trust and obedience. On the back of the bulletin, there are the 10 results of the resurrection by John Piper. You can read through those. He rose from the dead. So what? 10 things flow out of it. It's good news for women, as I indicated, because he appeared to them first. And take a long time to establish that, and I don't have the time, but as a result of that, women are now liberated, and in our culture, they are treated with much more respect and treated as equals. That's not true in all cultures, and that's certainly not true throughout history, but it's because of what Jesus did, what he taught, and the fact that in his resurrection, he appeared to the women first. It's countercultural. The resurrection is great encouragement for those who are weak in faith, like Thomas. It's great encouragement for those who are like Peter, who have failed, because Jesus appears to him and deals with it. The resurrection of Jesus is good news for sinners, for all of us, because there is a way back to God through him. Can a person believe that Jesus rose from the dead and not be a follower of Jesus? Can they say, yes, the resurrection happened, they believe it intellectually, but not be born again, not be saved, not be a Christian? Yes, it is possible. For them, it's simply an academic truth with no personal application or embracement. Romans 10.9 says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Confession and belief in the heart. For one believes with a heart and so is justified and confesses with the mouth and so is saved. Verse 13, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The resurrection of Jesus is not just something to believe academically. It's something to embrace, both emotionally but also relationally. That because he rose, therefore everything he said is true. Therefore I can be forgiven. Therefore I can have meaning and purpose. What were the words of the song? Because he lives. All f- what is it? All fear is gone. Something before that. Um, I know who holds the future and life is worth the living all because he lives. Because he lives. What Kushner said is incorrect. The historicity of the resurrection is absolutely necessary for us. It's not Western resuscitation. It's not Eastern reincarnation. They saw the evidence before they saw him and then they saw him. And we have their testimony to that same end. Do you believe? Are you convinced it's true? Are you committed on the basis of that convincing to trust him and to obey him? There is no other way. It certainly costs to follow the Lord Jesus, but it'll cost a whole lot more not to. Let's pray together. Just before I pray, you pray, you think quietly in God's presence. What's your response to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus? Heavenly Father, because he lives, we can be redeemed, completely forgiven for all of our sin. Because he lives, he can empower us. He listens to us. 
He has a purpose for us in serving him. Help us to be both the recipients of grace and the carriers of grace to others, all because he lives. Lord Jesus, live in us. Fill us with your spirit. And may you have your will and your way in each of our lives, in each of our marriages, in each of our families, and in all of our work ethic. Live in us, Lord Jesus, we pray in your name. Amen.